This is They Create Worlds, episode 57, Foundation of the Japanese Video Arcade Game Industry. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will not be talking in America. We'll be talking in Japan. How they used to do an old-time radio, where you had that North American-speaking thing because the radios back then were really bad. So you had to talk with extreme diction so that you could understand what the announcer was saying. So now we go live to Alex as he tells us about the foundation of the Japanese video game industry. Well, okay then. I guess that happened. Yes, we are today talking about Japan and kind of the beginnings of the Japanese arcade game industry. Some of this will be a little bit duplicative of what we did in our Japanese Game Center episode because we did kind of chart the course of the Japanese Game Center from its inception well before video games all the way through to something vaguely resembling the present day. A little bit of it will be repeat, but we really kind of want to drill down into the critical period between about 1976 and 1980, which is really when the Japanese video game industry solidified. There were a couple of companies doing video games before that, but that was the period when it really coalesced and took off. And when we're talking about the video game industry here, we're really more focusing on the arcade aspect of it, not the console side or the PC side. That's exactly correct. I mean, there were some console developments going on at roughly the same time, but in terms of broad-based success in the home in Japan, you really don't get it until the Famicom. Not that there weren't systems. They had a brief Pong boom in kind of the late 70s and... There were a few programmable consoles that came out before the Famicom did. Really, it starts in a real way with the Famicom. So we're going to be looking at kind of the true beginning of the Japanese arcade video game industry here in the late 70s. Now, this is before or after the video game arcade industry in the States. So Japan, as we've said in the past in some of our other episodes, is usually a couple of years behind the United States, at least in this time period, not quite so much in later periods. So things tend to hit Japan a couple of years, two or three years after they hit the States. In the United States, you had the Pong fad. And it really was, we've talked about this, it really was a Pong fad, not a video game fad, where Atari did Pong, it was cloned to death, the industry declined a little bit, but then... They moved on to other genres, and it kind of started slowly building again. There is an arcade video game industry in the United States. It's decently successful, but it's not lighting the world on fire, because we are talking about the pre-Space Invaders period. And believe me, Space Invaders is something we'll be talking about fairly shortly in the context of Japan. But They may have liked that game a lot. (laughs) Exactly, and of course, it's a Japanese game as well. So it's key to the story we're going to tell today. But at the beginning of this period, is still pre-Space Invaders. So video games have happened. There's a halfway decent industry in the United States. Atari and Midway kind of dominate the industry. There are a few smaller players like Ramtech and Exidy that move a few thousand units a year and, and do okay. But like 70 or 80% of the business is Atari and Midway. We talked about this a little bit before. In Japan, there really wasn't a Pong bad. It wasn't the same. Pong did make its way to Japan, and other ball and paddle games, and even a couple games of other genres, like the driving games, we talked about Speed Race, did make it to Japan in the 73, 74, 75 time period. But there really was not a lot of activity in that space yet. They were still very focused on electromechanical stuff. There were four major Japanese manufacturers at this point, and there were A dozen or more minor manufacturers, but just like Atari and Midway far and away dominated the U.S. scene in video games, the electromechanical scene in Japan 
was dominated by four companies, most of which we've talked about in some depth in one episode or another. Sega is the largest of those, Sega Enterprises. Then you have Taito, uh, which is also very large. Nakamura Manufacturing, the company that would later become Namco. And then Casco. Casco is not a company we talk about a lot because they never transitioned into video games at all, really. So these are the four big companies in Japanese electromechanical game manufacturing, which is largely target shooting games and driving games. That's what they really like. They like Pinball 2, but with the exception of Sega, which does establish a pinball division in about 1972, the Japanese companies don't make pinball. They import them from the United States. So these four companies are the leaders, and of those four companies, only two of them start making video games at this point. And that's Sega and Taito. And we've talked about that in the past. So they're making a few games. They do the Pong clones. They do a couple of early driving games. I think Sega does an early baseball game. It's very much dwarfed by the electromechanical industry, which is still the main thing going on in Japan. So even though the United States is embracing the video game, at this point, Japan really is not. If Japan's not really embracing video games, what is the spark that really makes them go, ooh, I like that? Well, this is another thing that we have talked about before. This little part of this is a bit of an overlap with our Japanese Game Center episode. But the game that really transforms things in Japan is Breakout. We have mentioned Breakout before. Absolutely. We mentioned its effect in Japan as well, too. Uh, This time, though, I want to talk about that effect in a slightly different way. And I don't know what it is about Breakout that captured the Japanese imagination. I mean, why that game? Why not Pong? Why not the early driving games? I don't know. But there was just something about Breakout that really captured the imagination. I mean, it was a hit in the United States, too. It's not surprising that people liked Breakout because it was a fun game. But I don't know why it was that one in particular that sparked things. Maybe it's the uh, competition side of it without actually being direct competition. We have mentioned before in Japan, they really don't like direct confrontation, but they like indirect confrontation, which is why a lot of the arcade system, you don't necessarily have the ability to see your opponent, but having the ability to go against a score. So. There's some mysterious person with a three kanji initial thing has 20,000 points in Breakout. Ooh, well, this game seems simple enough. I should be able to figure that out. I should be able to get 50,000 points. (laughs) Well, I mean, there may be something to that. Now, uh, Breakout didn't track high scores. Uh, That's really something that started with Space Invaders and probably was a huge part of, of what made Space Invaders so popular. Certainly the fact that it's kind of a game of skill, but not one where you're directly confronting another person like you would be in a game like Pong, that that may actually have something to do with it. Us being armchair uh, psychologists here of the Japanese psyche. (laughs) Which Which is probably horribly, horribly wrong. Exactly. And I apologize to our poor Japanese listeners. (laughs) That's right. But for whatever reason... This is the game that really does it, and it's one of the very early games that Namco puts out. It's not the first game they put out, but of course we talked all about Namco's history, how they got into the video game industry by being Atari's distributor in the Far East, buying up the Atari Japan thing and then distributing Atari's games. So Breakout captures the imagination, and this is the first game that's widely cloned. And that's how you know you have a hit in the arcade industry, quite frankly. Pong was a hit. Pong was widely cloned. Before that, the Sega Electromechanical Advanced Audiovisual Games were a hit, and they got cloned. When you have clones, that's when you know you've got something. And Sega and Taito released Pong clones, but that was it. They were the only companies that did it. There was not this mass rush into that space. But with Breakout, there was that mass rush into that space. And this was the beginning of a bunch of companies that had never really been involved in the Japanese arcade industry before getting involved in that industry. 
it actually, as near as I can tell, again, our Japanese sources are not great, but it seems like it comes down to major operating companies seeing that this game is popular and then not being able to get all of what they wanted necessarily from the official distributor, in this case, Namco, and therefore finding other companies that will be willing to build these games for them. This is a phenomenon that we talked about in our Konami episode a little bit. Konami was in the jukebox business. They got into the metal game business because two major operators decided to form a distributor together, the Lajac Corporation, and then needed a manufacturer to supply their distributor. And so they made Konami the exclusive manufacturer of the Lajac Corporation. That's kind of similar to what we see happen here with some of these early breakout games, these blockbusting games, these clones of breakout. And it's a combination of both some of these operators as well as some distributors. In Japan, a lot of the manufacturers are also their own distributor and even their own operator. We talked about that. But there are companies that exist outside of that structure as well. There are a small number of distributors and some major operators that are not manufacturers. And so they're at a disadvantage when it comes to competing with a Sega or a Namco or a Taito, who are their own distributors and operators as well as being manufacturers. And so they kind of help some of these smaller companies get into the video game industry, I think, this is just me hypothesizing, but it makes sense as much as anything to counter these super companies that do it all in one. They never have a full three-tiered system like the United States does, but those companies that don't have their own manufacturing need to do something to keep up with those giants. Now, we have talked a lot about the Japanese arcade in the past, especially with Sega. It really sort of lays the foundation of we have post-war Japan and we're having the development of coin-op thing, coin-op amusement. We have that with 50 years of Namco, so on and so forth. So around this time, the 70s time period, how much of it, this is before we have the breakout part, how much of it is traditional coin-op where you have gun games, racing games, so on and so forth. How much is that versus, say, the first video games of just Pong? Rough percentages. Well, I would say I've seen some figures. I mean, by 1973 or so, there were upwards of half a million games on location in Japan, coin-operated. I mean, only the barest fraction of that would have been video games. I don't really have numbers for video games from that time period, but it was it was definitely dominated by those those electromechanical games. So really, it's more electromechanical in the Pong era. So when we transition over into Breakout, at what rate do we see the electromechanical fall and video rise? Well, it starts with Breakout, but it doesn't really finish there. I think part of what's going on at this period of time is with the exception of those big three, Sega, Taito, Namco, the guys that are doing the electromechanical stuff, for the most part, don't transition into video so much. Casco, like I said, the other member of the big four in the electromechanical space, they never transition into video, which ultimately ends up being their undoing. But they keep releasing games up through the late 70s. I mean, electromechanical stuff still sells in the late 70s. They almost do a video game once. They partner with JVC, Japan Victor Corporation, and they did a prototype of a color video game all the way back in 1973 when nothing was in color. I mean, very advanced for its time. But JVC decided to back out of it, and Casco couldn't really go it alone, and they never explored the video game industry again, or at least if they did, they didn't do it in a serious enough way for any anyone in the public to know about it. So it's really different from, say, in the States and Chicago, where you really have a lot of them transitioning and pivoting rapidly, Mm -hmm. where 
you have, oh, electromechanical isn't really that popular. Quick, we need to get all these video games. Oh, no, video games aren't as popular. Quick, we need to get all of these pinball games. <laughs> oh, crap. We need to get more video games because pinball doesn't isn't so awesome anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it comes down to expertise, I think, a little bit. It was not so easy for a Japanese arcade company to acquire the talent to be able to create a video game. I mean, in the United States, there was a, a mismatch, too. I mean, the guys that had been doing the electromechanical pinballs and novelty amusements for decades didn't have the expertise to be working with transistors and microprocessors and all of that stuff. But it was fairly easy for them to find people who did have experience with that stuff. I mean, Chicago, which was the heart of the pinball trade, was also where a little company called Motorola happened to be. So when it came time to make that transition, there were other companies that, you know, had been working with this stuff for a while. Japan was still a little bit behind the curve at this point. They were starting to get better with solid state hardware and with programming solid state hardware. But the country as a whole was still kind of wrapping its head around this stuff in the early 1970s. So these electromechanical companies, they were very good with the EM stuff, but they didn't tend to have employees that could do the solid state stuff. And they didn't really have a talent pool which they could hire from to do it. We talked a little bit about this with our driving game episode, how uh, Tomohiro Nishikado at Taito, the guy who did all of their early video games practically up through Space Invaders, which was his creation, they just lucked into having him. It just so happened that they had a single solitary employee on staff that was able to do this stuff. And if he wasn't there, then they'd be up the river with no paddle. Exactly. Sega, it was a great challenge for them. And I think we talked about this in one of our episodes, that part of the reason that they established their first American branch in 1975, a different Sega of America than the one that released all the consoles later on, but this was also called Sega America, Part of the reason that they established Sega of America is so that they could hire solid state experts in the United States to collaborate with their Japanese game design staff in order to produce some of their very first original video game concepts. Namco also lucked out. Now, at this point with Breakout, Namco is still just a distributor of Atari's video games. They're not making their own video games. But they very much lucked out because the fact that they had these games, these video games that they were distributing, actually attracted people to the company that had this expertise. The guy who created their first video game hardware, we talked about him in our Namco episode, Ishimura. He was actually attracted to Namco and joined Namco because he saw in a magazine or something, he saw a space race board that was atari's second game space race and kind of the circuit board kind of excited him and he also loved the playfulness of it because the the graphics were very primitive it was pre-rom chip and the graphics were stored in diodes individual diodes stored at each individual point on on the graphic and just like in computer space we talked about this in the context of computer space but it was true in space race as well the diodes were arrayed in the shape of the graphic it was depicting. So in Space Race, it's a rocket ship, and it's actually arrayed in the shape of half a rocket ship because they used mirroring techniques to save memory. He liked the technology, and he also liked the playfulness of it. And he knew that Namco was the company that was putting this game out in Japan, and so he applied for a job at Namco. Once he got into Namco, he realized that they don't make games like that. <laughs> you know, they just distribute them. But the point is, uh, a couple years later here, when they do decide to get into the video game industry as a uh, designer and manufacturer themselves, they have Ishimura, this hardware guy, already in the company because he was attracted by what they were doing with, uh, with the Atari stuff. So really, the reason Sega and Namco are really as dominant as they were in the breakout era and further on in Space Invaders and so on, is because they lucked out on attracting these people. Otherwise, I would think that 
it would be anyone's game. Any of those smaller players could just attract one of these people. There's nothing to say that Nishikado couldn't have gone to some other company and been, hey, I got this awesome idea here. Why don't we make it? No, that that's absolutely true. If you look at these three companies, Sega, Namco, Taito, which of course become the big three of the Japanese arcade industry and remain that way for decades, you have Nishikado, who joined the company to be an electromechanical game designer, but happened to have solid-state experience. You have Ishimura at Namco, who thought that he could make hardware at Namco. <laughs> it turned out he couldn't, but then later, when the time came, he was able to successfully push the company to make its own game. And then if you look at Sega, Sega didn't have any of these kind of people within their company already, or at least not that we know of. I mean, if they do, it's not someone that's come up in English language sources or any of the Japanese sources that we've kind of hackily translated a bit here. But they were coming into America far more strongly than the other two to look for talent, which makes sense when you remember that, unlike these other two companies, Sega is run by an American, David Rosen. So they found Sega of America in 1975 to kind of tap into the local talent pool. And when that's not working for them, they decide, okay, we'll acquire an established American company and harness their expertise. And so they buy Gremlin in 1978. So, yeah, these, these three companies really stand out in that sense that they had the, the luck that they had these guys. So they're the big ones because, of course, they're the super companies, right? They're the ones that are manufacturers, distributors, and operators. So they're going to end up dominating the industry. But there are other Japanese distributors and operators that want to get involved in this video business, too, after Breakout. Before Breakout, they didn't really care. I mean, other stuff was popular. I mean, we talked about the Metal Game fad. Metal games were what was really huge in kind of 74, 75, that kind of time frame. So these companies were kind of focused on that. When Lijok subcontracted Konami to be their manufacturer of games, they subcontracted them to make metal games because that's what was big at the time. But we're going to see the same thing happening in video games once Breakout hits because Namco brings out Breakout, the official version from Atari, and then everyone else wants a piece of this, and Namco can't get the units it needs to fill that demand. You have other companies taking notice of this game, and then, just like Lejoc subcontracted Konami, you see the same thing happen with Breakout games. One example of this is that there was a guy in the jukebox leasing business you know, similar to what Konami had started in, but there was a guy in the jukebox leasing business named uh, Takishi Miyajima who noticed Breakout right away. And in early 1977, he thought that this would be a great way to expand his business would be to get involved in the selling of these new machines. But he needed another source. And so he turned to someone else that was in the jukebox business, but that had experience working with solid-state circuits, a guy named Kazuo Okada. Kazuo Okada had founded a few years ago, 1969, I think, a company called Universal. We've talked about them before. We didn't go into their origin, but we talked about Universal, no, not the movie company, uh, that created the first widely popular kit game in the arcade Mr. Do. So Okada knew how to work with solid-state stuff. He had some of this expertise. Since uh, Miyajima was also in the jukebox business with Okada, Miyajima knew this about Okada, knew this about his company, Universal, that they had this expertise. So Miyajima comes to Okada and says, make me a blockbusting game. Make me a game like Breakout. And so Okada does that. And that's the first of these kind of breakout clones that comes out in the Japanese marketplace in very early 1977. It's the beginning of Universal as a video game company. Universal remains a video game company for well over a decade. 
So you're starting to get some of these new players into the field. Pretty soon after that, there's another company called Esco Trading. Esco Trading is a major distributor in the Japanese coin-op industry. It's probably the only major distributor, really, that is not also a manufacturer. You know, it's, it's a distributor that's definitely on par with your Segas and your Taitos and your Namcos, but it's just a distributor. It doesn't manufacture. Esco Trading was founded by a fellow that we've talked about before, Hayao Nakayama. Later on, his company Esco would be bought out by Sega, and he would become the, the executive vice president in Japan, and then the president in Japan, and then head of the entire company. He's the guy that led the company all through the master system and the genesis and all of that stuff. You see, he had gotten his start in the jukebox business with a firm called V&V that was run by two Russians, just like Michael Kogan of Taito was a Russian and he started the jukebox business. There was this other company, V&V, that was also founded by Russians and was also in the jukebox business. You know, a lot of these early coin-op companies in Japan, they were all foreign run. So Nakayama got to start with them and became an expert in the industry and became known as a very good salesman and so decided to strike out on his own and found his own company, and that was Esco Trading. It was the fact that that company was so good at what it did that finally caused Sega to buy them out in 1979, basically so that they could have Hayao Nakayama's expertise in their own company. Esco Trading wanted to get involved in this new breakout phenomenon as well. And so they got a few other companies involved. They distributed a breakout game that came from a company called Data East. Data East was an instrument manufacturer, measuring instruments. That's why Data East. They had some expertise in this area. Uh, Tetsuo Fukuda, the founder of the company, had some expertise in this solid state stuff. And so Esco Trading sells Data East's breakout game. And that's how Data East gets involved in the business. Another company that really isn't known today uh, called Toyuka Industry did the same thing through Esco. They created one of these games and they sold it through Esco Trading. Lijak Corporation decides that they want to be involved in this. And so their exclusive manufacturer is Konami. And so because Lijak wants to be involved, they get Konami involved. You see kind of distribution and operating companies pushing these non-traditional companies, these companies that really aren't making coin-operated amusements, but just so happen to have the expertise in solid state to be able to make these games. They're pushing them to make these games, and then they're supporting them and getting into this new market. And it's a market that really explodes. We talked about this in our Game Center episode after Taito comes up with the idea of the tabletop cabinet, what we would call a cocktail cabinet in the United States, but in Japan is known as the tabletop or table type game. Taito was largely inspired to do this because their jukebox business was dying. We talked about this. Piped music was taking over, karaoke was taking over, people didn't want jukeboxes anymore. So they said to themselves, how do we keep selling product into those places that we used to sell jukeboxes when they don't want jukeboxes anymore? And it's like, well, we can give them a game that you sit down at a table so that it's appropriate for a snack bar or a tea house or a coffee house or a bar or whatever. That also ties into this entire explosion that's going on, real estate. Real estate in Japan is really, really expensive. Mm -hmm. We have all these new players coming in trying to get breakout or their various clones all over the place. There's only so many rooftops you can shove these things into. Presumably because of the cocktail cabinet, tabletop cabinet, you can sneak them into some tea houses, some bath houses, a few other places. Did we already have the traditional Japanese big arcade dedicated game center at this point? Or was that later on? Well, we sort of did. But at this point, they were still largely connected to an existing business. 
your movie theater might have a big arcade in it or your train station might have a big arcade in it or a department store or a supermarket might have some arcade games in it. You didn't have a huge amount of dedicated game center venues yet. That was starting to come in because of the metal game boom. Uh, We talked in our Game Center episode about how Sigma Enterprises in 1971 created the very first, what's considered the very first game center that was not attached to an existing business. But that was a metal game establishment at that time. It was not an establishment for other electromechanical kind of games. With Breakout, we're not to the point yet where we're seeing more of those independent game centers. That's really a Space Invaders thing. So it's really when we transition into Space Invaders that we really see the explosion of Japanese video arcade centers, sort of like how we hear about these days. Right. That's really when when that starts as standalone entities. Like I said, there were some big arcades already at this point in Japan. They were just usually attached to a different business, like a department store or a movie theater. What Breakout did, and particularly what Breakout did in its tabletop form, is it got video games into tea houses, snack bars, bars, those kind of entertainment venues. Because those tabletops, it's just like we talked about Pong in the very brief cocktail boom when they were getting into cocktail lounges. It's the same idea. If you have a sit-down cabinet, it's unobtrusive. You don't have people clustered around it being noisy and discouraging your regular patrons from coming in to have a drink or get a snack. You're allowing that game to be in the location without being a distraction. Not only that, but it has a dual purpose. You go there to eat, drink, do whatever. You can't find a seat. Oh, there's a seat at this cocktail game cabinet. Oh, that's amusing. I see this thing moving around. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to put in whatever amount of yen it is in order to give that a shot. It's the pure novelty of it. Absolutely. And these tabletop games became huge. I mean, there were some locations that were replacing all of their tables with tabletops. Because the, the Japanese tabletop game was a little bit different than the cocktail game. It was a little different in design. Cocktail games tended to be round or hexagonal. They tended to be multiplayer, so you need multiple surfaces with with multiple dials all over the place. They were tables in the sense that they were flat. You could sit at them. You could put a drink on them, and it wouldn't harm the game or anything. But they weren't really tables. The tabletop games were essentially tables. They were rectangular. They were long and rectangular. And because Breakout and later Space Invaders were single-player games, you only needed one set of controls. So they were much more like traditional tables. You could really put a lot of those into a single establishment without disrupting your regular eating, drinking clientele because they were, they were tables. They, they really were. You know, Breakout gets into a lot of these mainstream venues that even the electromechanical games hadn't ever really gotten into before. So, and really starts making it so that video games are in the Japanese psyche and start to be accepted, much how Pong made video games acceptable in the United States. Exactly. You know, a lot of companies get in at this point because it feels like it's substantial enough that, that you can make money in it. So, I mean, we already mentioned some of them, but Breakout is also the point that Shin Nihon Kikaku gets in the business, which later abbreviates itself to SNK. SNK was a computer services company. They provided, in Japan, it was uh, for a long time, even after it stopped being customary in the U.S., for a long time, businesses would usually buy custom systems. I mean, you, you had the Japanese computer manufacturers like NEC and Toshiba and Hitachi that, that actually made the computers or whatnot. But you wouldn't buy your computer set up from Hitachi like you would buy your computer set up from IBM in the United States. You would go to a company that would build you something customized. It would use existing hardware from the you know big Japanese manufacturers, and then they would make a lot of software for you, custom software and whatnot. And they would create something completely customized for you. This is how 
kind of the Japanese computer industry worked. You kind of had that for a while in the United States uh, after the System 360 and IBM kind of lost control of the market a little bit and there were companies making System 360 clones that would do something similar. This persisted in Japan a lot longer than it did in the U.S. So SNK, Shinnihom Kikaku, was one of these companies. And then when these video games took off, Kawasaki, Aichi Kawasaki, the founder of SNK, decided that this seemed like a good side business, and so he made a breakout game. Irem. Irem was founded by Kinzo Tsujimoto. They were already in the coin-op business, but they weren't in the video game business. And Kinzo Tsujimoto, who later on founded Capcom after leaving Irem, he saw this breakout thing and thought, this looks good. And so he partnered with a Japanese monitor company called Nanao, and Nanao invested in Irem. It wasn't called Irem at the time. It was called IPM, I believe, but they later changed their name to Irem. They accepted an investment from the monitor company Nanao, which provided them with the resources they needed to get into this video game business. So you have Irem getting in. You have Data East getting in. You have SNK getting in. You have Konami getting in. Really, Breakout is the genesis point for a lot of the iconic Japanese companies we come to know and love over the years. Right. Before Breakout, it was Taito and Sega, period, with Nakamura serving as a distributor of Atari products, but not as a manufacturer. After Breakout, it's all of these companies. It's a huge, huge swash of companies that... Some of them continue on to dominate. Some of them just become developers. Right. But at this point, most of them are just catching a fad. I think it's fair to say. I don't think most of these companies thought at that time that they were getting into the video game business. Uh, We've talked about the example of Konami. Even in the early 1980s, even after Space Invaders and all of that, Konami did not see itself as a video game company until probably around 1983 or 1984. So, you know, Data East is doing a game. Konami's doing a game. Nintendo, because they get involved here too, is doing a game. But they're writing a fad. They're not necessarily becoming video game companies. So Breakout is a minor fad. But then Space Invaders is a humongous fad. And it is a fad. In Japan, it is a fad. They call it the invader craze. It has a meteoric rise and a just as sudden collapse. But the interesting thing about Space Invaders, and this is a very interesting thing to understand about why the Japanese market works the way it does. In Japan, there has always been, I think it's fair to say, through the kind of 8, 16, and 32-bit eras. This isn't so much true in the modern era. But through those early periods, you had a lot of Japanese publishers, if you stop and think about it. A lot of Japanese arcade manufacturers, a lot of publishers on the consoles, way more mid-tier companies than you would see in the United States. The United States tends to be dominated by two or three or four big publishers. And then you might have some really tiny publishers that manage to get a game or two out. But you don't have this huge middle ground where you have like a dozen companies that all put out, you know, three or four games a year and and have some success with them. But you see that in Japan. And a lot of that is because there's more of a symbiotic relationship. You know, in the United States with Pong, Atari had a hit with Pong. Atari could not keep up with the demand for Pong. As a result, you know, a half dozen, a dozen other companies get into the market and copy Pong. But they're, they're cloning. They're, they're copying it. There's nothing licensed about that. They're not innovating either. Right. In Japan, these companies actually support each other a little bit. There's a lot of cross-investment in Japanese companies. I forget which person I was talking to. I can't remember if it was Howie Rubin, who was at Jalco, or Paul Moriarty, who was at Taito. Uh, or Joe Maurici at Capcom. I forget which one it was, but it was one of these guys that was one of these lower tier companies. You know, he was talking about JAMA was the big amusement association, still is, the big amusement company association in Japan. I remember this, whoever it was, telling me that 
you know, one time when the president switched from like, and I, I could have the order of it wrong. The anecdote isn't as important as, as the overall effect. So let's just say that, you know, Nakamura at Namco gave way to Nakayama at, at Sega as the president of JAMA. And it was at that point that Namco ended its 20% investment in his company and Sega bought the 20% investment in the company. The point being that if you are a larger company in Japan, you invest in some of the smaller companies and you actually help them thrive. Which is something that would not happen at all in the United States, pretty much. Right. I'm sure you get isolated examples of it. But as an industry-wide kind of... uh, As an industry-wide mode of operation. Yeah. You, You don't get that in the United States, but you do get that in Japan. Space Invaders is kind of the first time that this manifests in the context of the video game industry. We've gone into the creation of Space Invaders before, so we won't go into that. When it hits, it hits massively. There were probably half a million Invader games in Japan by, like, the middle of 1979. Some of them upright, some of them tabletop. It was another huge hit in tabletop or tabletype, just like uh, Breakout was. This is the point where you start seeing standalone arcades, standalone game centers in greater numbers. And they are called Invader Houses. Because, I mean, that's... That's what's in them, you know, is these invader games. Row upon row upon row of invader games. Right. And so, of course, Taito can't keep up with the demand. Figurepie just barely stocked two stores. (laughs) I mean, yeah, the demand is so insane. So what do they do? They license the production of the game. They go to smaller factories and tell them that we will allow you to manufacture our game. It will be stamped, marked, whatever, as an official Space Invaders game. It will be Space Invaders. It's just your company will be making it. And obviously, that company gets a cut of it. Right, exactly. Because they're, they're the ones manufacturing and selling the game, but they're doing it under license from Taito. This is now me speculating again. This could be off. Japan is a groupthink culture. Collectivist culture. Collectivist culture. In the console industry, there's always been a clear winner in each generation. Nintendo destroyed Sega in the 8-bit and the 16-bit generations. Sony destroyed everybody in the PS1 and the PS2 periods. The Wii destroyed everybody in that time period. You know, in the United States, it was often closer. You know, Sega and Nintendo in the 16-bit era, very famously, that was a close battle. In Japan, once it becomes clear that there is a favorite, people gravitate towards that favorite. My guess, and I do want to stress this is a guess, is that something similar happens in the arcade. In the United States, like with the Pong fad, I don't think your average American consumer cared whether you were playing Pong or winner, or paddle battle, or volley, or whatever ball and paddle game they happen to be playing. Right. My guess is that because Space Invaders was so big, people wanted to play Space Invaders. And there were knockoffs of Space Invaders. I mean, there are Japanese companies that ripped off Space Invaders. But I would imagine, why would smaller manufacturers license it instead of cloning it, especially since there essentially was no copyright law for video games at all in Japan pre-1982, so you didn't really have to worry about the legal side of it? My guess is it's because people wanted space invaders. They want the official logo. They want the official branding. They want the official this. When I talk to my friend about space invaders, I want to be able to relate to them in a way of, yeah, this is what I did. This is the game. This is how things look. Here's what I did. Here's my score. This is legitimate. Right. Taito 
gets the advantage of getting more Space Invaders out there and increasing its dominance in that way. Whereas these smaller companies get the advantage of having the Space Invaders game and not knock off number Whatever. 20, <laughs> you know? Bug Invaders. Right. <laughs> Bug Invasion. <laughs> SNK is actually licensed as an official manufacturer of Space Invaders. Irem is licensed. Logitech is licensed. Yes, that Logitech. <laughs> I think it's I think it's the same Logitech. Not the one that makes my keyboard and mouse and my headset. But they're licensed. A company called uh, Jatra, which uh, is no longer around, but they had made a breakout clone, and they're licensed to make Space Invaders. Again, you've got the bigger companies in the industry. Just like when the breakout period, we saw some of the bigger distributors and operators that didn't have their own manufacturing capability helping these small companies get into the industry. Now, with an outsized hit like Space Invaders, you're seeing one of the big manufacturers in the industry helping out all of these little guys and keeping them going by allowing them to officially license this game and put out their versions into the arcades. So it's this kind of communal, we all look out for each other kind of thing that is fostering the growth of this vibrant Japanese industry. And it's why, you know, in the United States, you might only see five or six noteworthy companies in the arcade field. In Japan, you very quickly see like almost a dozen of them. And it's because of this kind of communal thing. So really, it's Breakout and Space Invaders that are really the foundation of the Japanese video game arcade industry because you have Breakout that really gets all of these people in in order to become these companies we know and love. Some of them in Japan, some of them in the United States, some of them don't make it to now, but quite a few of them still publish games now. Absolutely. And then with Space Invaders, you really see that ferment where you have all of this cross-pollinization, all this cross-support in order to make it so that those companies are really able to establish themselves fully and come into their own in order to then continue on and pass Space Invaders into the modern video game world, so to speak. Right. But remember, Space Invaders is a fad. Mm -hmm. So we're not all the way there yet. Because Space Invaders in 1979 crashes, and it crashes hard. I mean, like I said, half a million machines. You know, probably half a million machines in Japan, all, all told. And that's not just the officially licensed. That would also include the clones and whatnot as well, because there were clones. So that that's unsustainable. <laughs> yeah, if you have an entire thing that is just, yeah, come to my invader house. We have 150 Space Invader games. <laughs> and then the people come in and go, I'm not really interested in that anymore. Do you happen to have the new uh, Bug Invaders game? <laughs> no, we just have the official Space Invaders one. Oh, well, goodbye then. Well, but even the clones are, are no longer necessarily interesting. So, I mean, it crashes hard. We want Dig Dug. <laughs> Jatra, that company I said isn't around anymore. They're not around anymore because when Space Invaders crashed, so did they. Irem, I told you, had partnered with Nanao, the monitor company, in order to get into the video game business. When Space Invaders crashes, they're hurt so badly that Tsujimoto has to sell the company to Nanao in order to stop from going bankrupt. Tsujimoto stays with the company at that point, but He's eventually forced out of the company, which is when he then goes on to found Capcom in 1983. All of these companies, all of these small companies that were making Space Invaders or making Space Invaders knockoffs, Space Invaders clones, were exclusively like making that one game or that one type of game. So once the market was saturated, they didn't have something else ready to put into production. I mean, a big company like Taito, I mean, of course, they're going to transition to something else because they're a big company. But these small companies, they don't have that yet. These small companies are still very fragile because they're all very new to this game business. And some of them, like Jotra and Irem, just quite frankly got in over their head and, and paid a consequence. What cements the video game in Japan 
Because to truly cement something, you need to show that you can go from hit to hit to hit. I mean, yes, Breakout was a hit and Space Invaders was a hit, but Breakout was a minor hit compared to Space Invaders. You needed to prove that you could follow up on Space Invaders and do something else. You need diversity. And it's Namco that does that. And they do it with Galaxian. And yes, Galaxian is a Space Invaders-like game. You're still controlling a spaceship at the bottom of the screen. There are aliens arrayed at the top of the screen. You are shooting at them and trying not to get shot by them. And they're advancing downward. So it's still a space game, but it's different because what Namco, of course, does is they bring sprites to Japan. Space Invaders is a bitmap screen. It's a microprocessor-driven hardware, but it's a bitmap screen. You draw the entire screen in memory, in a frame buffer, and then that frame buffer sends the information to the the, the CRT on on how to draw the screen and, and where everything goes. Every time that something moves on the screen, you have to update the entire screen because it's just all bitmap. We've talked about, you know, bitmap screens before. That's why you have this monolithic row of aliens, and that's why the game moves fairly slowly at the beginning and then speeds up the more targets you eliminate because there's less stuff that has to be redrawn over and over again, and that frees up memory. Galaxian was the first major Japanese game. It had been done in the States before, but it was the first major Japanese game to have sprite-generating hardware instead. And, of course, we've talked about sprites. That's where you have these individual predefined groups of pixels that can be pushed around the screen independently of the background. So you don't have to redraw the whole screen every time your sprite moves because your sprite engine just repositions that sprite. It's operating independently of the bitmap. Sort of like a mini bitmap where I only have... 8 by 8 or 4 by 4 or 16 by 16. That's all I got. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It leads to some very entertaining artwork. Exactly. And it plays by its own rules. So Galaxian has sprites. So Galaxian is a fast game. You have all of these ships swooping down individually. You can move them individually, you know, because it's not a bitmap. I mean, uh, you can move objects independently on a bitmap, but it just, it takes so much processing power to do all of that redrawing that with the primitive hardware of the time, that's just not practical. So you need a sprite engine to be able to have fast-moving objects like the spaceships in Galaxian. So this is a whole nother level of intensity. And, you know, Space Invaders has those bunkers. You have a limited amount of protection until such time as those bunkers disintegrate. There ain't no bunkers in Galaxian. It is just you on the bottom of that screen, and everything's coming for you right now. Press A. Press A. (laughs) Their ships are on fire. That's right. They're going to turn your ship onto fire, or into fire, or both. I mean, Space Invaders was a level of intensity that no one had really seen in a video game before. But Galaxian made the intensity of Space Invaders look like nothing. So this is kind of the next evolution. And so just as the market is falling apart around Space Invaders, Galaxian hits. And Galaxian is not as big a hit as Space Invaders. Nothing. In Japan, nothing. I don't think even Pac-Man, which was big in Japan. But I don't think even Pac-Man was as big in Japan as Space Invaders was. In the U.S., Pac-Man was bigger than Space Invaders. Japan, Space Invaders is still the all-time champion, I think. It wasn't as big, but it was big enough. And here's the thing. Here's the important thing again. Namco couldn't keep up with demand with just their own factory. So they sub-licensed. Some of the Space Invaders sub-licensing is is known in the West, but I don't think anyone really realizes the sub-licensing that went on with Galaxian. Because again, this is coming from that video game history book that we've talked about a couple times that uh, Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, has been kind of hackily translating in his spare time. Galaxian is licensed to Irem. It's licensed to Konami. It's licensed to Logitech. Nihon Busan, uh, Nichibitsu, which is another company that we didn't talk about, but it's another one of these 
small Japanese companies that gets into the video game industry right into this time period. It's licensed to them. They even do some sub-licensing to Sega and Taito to do some manufacturing for them as well. The Sega and Taito don't sell the game, but they, they do some, some manufacturing. Galaxian isn't just propping up Namco. Galaxian is basically propping up the entire industry. And you already have the precedent for that from Space Invaders. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. This is actually even on a more wide scale than Space Invaders. I mean, they, they rope more people into Galaxian than had been roped into Space Invaders. And here's the important thing. Galaxian is a much better hardware than the Space Invaders hardware. It's Z80-based instead of 8080-based. The Z80 is a Intel x86-derived processor because Federico Fagan, the creator of it, had been one of the co-creators of the microprocessor at Intel. And then he went and founded his own company, Zilog, and basically made his own better version of the 8080 called the Z80. So it's, it's similar to x86, but it's not quite the same. But it, the Z80 was kind of the hot processor at the time. So it's, it's Z80-based which is what all the cool kids are doing circa 1979. It's got a Sprite engine. It's got all of this advanced stuff going on. It's a color hardware, because uh, one of the other big things about Galaxian is it is full color. It's not the first full color game, but it's kind of the first big full color game. They're allowing all of these smaller companies to manufacture it, which means they're all getting a look at the board, which means they all know what's going on with the board. Which means they're all also sharing in the profit. Well, it's not just the profit. They're sharing in the technology. So the Galaxian board, some version of the Galaxian board, whether it's a direct rip of the board or it's just using the board as a base and making a few tweaks here and there, that Galaxian board becomes the foundation of some of the games that these companies start making when they start making their own original product instead of just ripping everything off. Konami's game Scramble, which is the first scrolling shooter. We talked about it. The board that runs Scramble is very similar to the board that ran Galaxian. That can't be a coincidence because they were building Galaxian for Namco. So they understand how Sprite technology works. They understand how to take this and really apply it. And because Sprites allow you to do so much, really what you just do when you advance Sprites is oh, if I can get more sprites on there and more and more sprites, more dedicated hardware for sprite generation and and something fancy for the background, you get what is the video game era from the 80s into the 90s until vector graphics start taking over. Mm -hmm. You have the sprite era that Alex and I both have grown up on and dearly adore. And Mm -hmm. there's a bit of a retro craze of going, hey, those sprite games kind of look kind of cool. Absolutely. We can't in any way understate the importance of Galaxian in the development of the industry. It wasn't as big a hit as Space Invaders. It wasn't as influential a game in terms of its mechanics or whatever as a Space Invaders. But I don't think you get the full flowering of the Japanese arcade industry without Galaxian. Because that's the game that was shared with the vast majority of the companies involved in the business. And that's the game whose hardware really set the tone for what these companies would do with their own hardware. So Breakout and Space Invaders, all of these companies are just cloning. You know, companies like Data East and Konami and Irem and whatnot, they're cloning. Sometimes they're licensed clones, sometimes they're unlicensed. But it's there's not much unique there, but Galaxian provides a hardware and a hardware expertise that allows these companies to start building their own more unique product. And that's where you get a Japanese industry instead of just a the Pong land. fad. Yeah, the Pong fad or the invader craze. So it's really breakout generates all of these companies. Space Invaders sets the stage for sharing of knowledge and cross-investment. And Galaxian disseminates Sprite technology to all these companies that were created and somehow survived from Breakout all the way till now. 
And then they're able to take this bright technology and run with it for a decade plus. Exactly. And then there's one other game that is also worth mentioning in this kind of continuum. The, the last game we'll kind of talk about here. And that's a game called Head On. We have talked about Head On, I think. We have. We have. We talked about it in the context of Pac-Man, which is, again, part of what we're going to talk about it in context again this time. Head On is a driving game. It's a driving game created in the United States, but it's created at Gremlin Industries. Gremlin, by this point, has been purchased by Sega. We've talked about that in our Sega episodes, how they purchased Gremlin. It's created by Americans at an American factory, but it's a Japanese-owned factory, which means that it instantly has an easier time being accepted in Japan because it's coming from a Japanese company, even if Americans are doing it. It's, quite frankly, the first dot-eating game. They're not literally being eaten as in Pac-Man because it's a race car and the race car is driving over these dots in these different lanes around the screen. And it's called head-on because there's another car, a computer-controlled car that's moving in the opposite direction as you and is driving down all these lanes and you have to avoid crashing into it. Plays a similar function to Pac-Man's ghosts in that sense. Head-on is another one of these games that is very popular and gets cross-licensed. Once again, Konami is licensed to manufacture head-on. Nintendo, Irem, Data East. You're seeing a lot of the same companies again all being sustained by this game. And then, of course, Toru Iwatani at, at Namco comes along and is almost certainly, even though we haven't heard him say it, almost certainly influenced by head-on when he creates Pac-Man. Pac-Man is kind of the last big, big, big game in Japan. I do think it was bigger in the U.S. than Japan, but it was still big in Japan. It's really the last one in this chain of Breakout, Space Invaders, Galaxian, Pac-Man, in what we call the Golden Age, that kind of made an impact in the Japanese arcade and helped birth this vibrant Japanese industry. You can probably trace that game back to head-on. I think it's fair to say that head-on played a huge role in that. And then head-on was also sub-licensed like crazy, just like Space Invaders and Galaxian, which again is continuing to push all of these smaller companies, keep them going, help them learn the ropes of the business, help them acquire technology that they can then use in their own games. And then leads to something bigger in the, in the form of Pac-Man. So you can kind of see how kind of these four games coming right in a row, Breakout, Space Invaders, Galaxy, and Head-On, kind of set the stage for everything that comes after. And Space Invaders is the peak. Galaxian's not as big as Space Invaders, and Head-On is certainly not as big as Galaxian. But then Pac-Man <laughs> is bigger than Galaxian or Head-On. So... You kind of see this moving through, and you see all of these companies getting involved. Data East, Universal, SNK, Nintendo, Konami, Irem, all of these companies that five years before this were not in the coin-op industry at all. It's not just that they weren't in the video game industry. They weren't in the coin-op industry. Universal was technically in jukeboxes, but they didn't do games. None of them were in the coin-operated games industry. Within five years, they're all in this industry. That's a rapid shift and change and something that I think is unprecedented before or since. And it's all because of this communal approach to building the industry. We're not just going to do our thing and you're going to do your thing and you're going to do your thing. We've got the big hit. We're going to share. We're going to license that out to you and, and you're going to help build it and you're going to get the expertise. And you know, I, I don't think that's something that necessarily continued past this period, because by then all of these organizations are mature organizations and they're coming up with their own game designs and they're running their own factories and they've got their own R&D. They're more diversified, so they don't need to do that anymore. But as I said, even after that, there's cross-investment, there's cross-partnerships where you might subcontract another company to make part of your game for you or that kind of thing. You still have that communal nature to it. It's just it's not the direct I'm going to 
authorize a half dozen other companies to create the exact same game I just created. It The support becomes slightly different from that. But this is really how it all begins in Japan, as, as far as I'm concerned. So that's certainly the foundation of the Japanese arcade video game industry. Absolutely. Since we've already started off the new year with Japan, what do we delve into next? Well, as we mentioned in the last episode, I've been working on a lot of electronic arts stuff recently. So I think it's fair to say that I've got electronic arts on the brain a little bit. Well, we've done the early years, their teenage years. Do we get to go into adulthood? No, no, not exactly that. I'd like to do a little bit of a deeper dive, I think, on the entire concept of EA Sports. We talked about the foundation of EA Sports some in our Teenage Years episode. We didn't really delve into kind of all of these individual sports products and how they had all of this stuff coming together and then birthed this this overarching brand and, and became a dominant force. Pretty much all sports games tied to EA. Except for basketball. Well, yes. And baseball. They had a basketball game for a while, but Take Two kind of took that out. So I think, uh, again, you know, when we've been doing this as long as we've been doing this now, it's harder and harder to come up with a completely clean topic of interest. So some of this will duplicate our EA The Teenage Years episode. Just like what we just covered here does touch on a bunch of things that we've already talked about with the combination of Japan, Sega, Arcade, all sorts of things. But we're just delving into more detail since we already have established that foundation if you happen to have listened to it and then remind you of what's going on exactly so next time we'll talk about the early years of the ea sports properties and then the birth and and beginnings of the brand known as ea sports ea sports it's in the game next time on they create world well actually it should be Next time on They Create World, EA, it's in the game. Brought to you by They Create World, a sponsor of itself. Goodbye. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Send us feedback at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at PCW Podcasts. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 